Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah chapter 4, please, beginning in verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Nehemiah 4, 1, and let's, let's read that together. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would open the ears of those in this room to hear. Lord, you, you, would, you would stop all distractions. Lord, that, that you would give me the ability to speak your word clearly, Lord, powerfully. May your people be blessed, Lord, as your word is preached in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Nehemiah, friends, is God's account of how he empowered his people, the Jews, through his leader, Nehemiah, to rebuild the walls of his city, his dwelling place, Jerusalem, amidst fierce opposition. So what relevance does that have for us here today? Why is that important for you and me today? Well, let me share with you a brief illustration that may help answer that question for you this morning. Rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem was a monumental task that required every able-bodied Jew to participate. Remember, the walls were one mile in circumference. They were three to four feet thick. They were 20 feet high. And here is a standard red brick. Let it represent the stone used to rebuild the wall. It would take approximately 2.5 million red stones to rebuild the wall. The cost at today's price of 49 cents per brick would be $1.25 million just for the stones. Just for the stones. A costly and a difficult task. 
made even more difficult by the fierce opposition arrayed against God's people, the Jews. Now, here is where it is relevant to you and me today. You see, God's rebuilding project continues some 2,500 years later. Only today, his dwelling place is no longer in Jerusalem, but in the hearts and lives of his people. So the rebuilding project is no longer with inanimate stones like this one, but with living stones like you and me. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 with me, just for a moment. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says the following. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Folks, God is building us living stones into a spiritual house where we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And those sacrifices are our very lives that we offer to God. So, Nehemiah has much to say to us about how God builds us together as a church in the midst of fierce opposition. And this text is here this morning to encourage us in the building process by identifying the opposition which often comes in the form of lies that weaken our faith. Our text this morning is here to expose the lies we believe and the truths we can bank on. You see, these lies, they get us to stop building. And so we've got to identify them. And then we have to identify the truths that combat them. So look at verse 1 again. In Nehemiah 4, verse 1. <clears throat> now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was greatly, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Now it's very important to identify here the players. Number one, God. He's the major player, always. But number two, we have Sanballat and his sidekick Tobiah. And number three, we have the Jews to whom Sanballat and Tobiah address their jeers. And finally, we have Nehemiah. Now, it's very important for you to remember this. Nehemiah, for us in this narrative, is the Christ figure. If you were to try to find us in this narrative, we would be the Jews. And Sanballat and Tobiah, Tobiah, they would be the enemies of God. So the enemies of God, as described in the Bible for us as Christians today are Satan, the world and its forces, the world and its philosophy that rebels against God, and our own flesh, that part of remaining sin within each one of us that joins in the rebellion against God. So in verse 1, we find Sanballat, our enemy, expressing his anger and his rage when he hears that the Jews are rebuilding the walls. This is nothing new for Sanballat and He and Tobiah have been in a bad mood for about two chapters now over the whole idea of rebuilding the city of God. Look at Nehemiah 2.10. Nehemiah 2.10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come, check this out, to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And then 2.19. 
and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Listen, Sanballat does not want the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt because it would challenge his kingdom. He was the the governor of the province just north of Jerusalem, Samaria. And so he opposes God. He opposes God's people. And this is how he opposes them. Look at verse 2 now of chapter 4 of Nehemiah. Look how he opposes them. He opposes them by jeering at them and asking a question. What are these feeble Jews doing? And he asked this question in the midst of all the people that were listening, his army and all the nobles of the area. What are these feeble Jews doing? See, Sam Ballot knew the answer to that question. We all know the answer to that question. Dude, read chapter 3. They've been building the wall. That's what they were doing. But Sanballat didn't ask that question to receive information. He asked that question to spread disinformation about the Jews. He asked that question to make a statement. Have you ever heard a reporter ask a question to a politician, not wanting an answer, but wanting to make a statement? It's exactly what Sanballat did. Here's the statement he wanted to make about the Jews. You guys are feeble and you can never complete this massive, sta- this massive task. Are you kidding me? 2.5 million of these at $1.25 million? You're not going to do it. And he made the statement to demoralize them. And this statement, which is actually a question, drives our text this morning. See, this question drives us this morning. See, this is the question that we face every day. What are you feeble Christians doing? What are you feeble Christians doing? It comes from the many sources, the many sand ballots in our lives. It comes from the world. It comes from Satan. It comes from our flesh. Tell me if you've heard this question before. You ready? What do you think you're doing? Are you a saint now that you don't go drinking into the clubs with us anymore? What do you think you're doing? Are you going to waste your life at that church with those people? What do you think you're doing? Your marriage will never change. The kids will always be this way. Your family is always going to fight. And asking ourselves, this is the enemy within, what do you think you're doing now? You'll never overcome that sin, that anger, that vengeance. For some, it may be self, selfish ambition. It may be self-righteousness. It may be lust. maybe bitterness. Just quit, man. You're such a hypocrite. Who do you think you are anyways? The answer to that question and the answer to Sanballat's question comes from Scripture, friends. It comes from God's mouth to our ears as as written in Scripture. The Jews, you know who they are? They're God's people. And you know what they're doing? They're, They're doing God's work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, his dwelling place. That's what the Jews are doing. That's who the Jews are. And we are God's people, dear friends, doing God's work of rebuilding the living walls of God's dwelling place, the church. See, that's the theme of the message. God's people do God's work. God's people do God's work. So who are God's people? Well, here is a logical point that's going to astound you. You ready? Who are God's people? Well, by definition, they're God's people. You laugh, but Sam Ballot missed that one. Look at his question again. Look at his question again in verse 2a. 
What are these feeble Jews doing? Sam Ballot's question omits God. Sam Ballot seeks to define God's people apart from God. That's a logical impossibility. It's a lie. But oh, is it effective? You see, see, Sam Ballot makes no mention of God because he wants to define them as feeble Jews. Sure, that may be true, but that's not all they are. They're God's people. He leaves God out of the equation. The Hebrew word there for feeble, that the English has translated feeble, has a range of meaning. That Hebrew word can mean miserable. Who are these miserable Jews? It can mean fading, like your glory is fading. It can mean withering, like a plant that withers. It can also be used of people without hope. See, this description is void of God. It's void of his hope. It's void of his life. It brings, it brings us to a people who were described as apathetic, a people who, after 150 years, the walls are still down. They're pathetic losers. That's the way Sam Ballot describes it. I could just hear Sam Ballot saying, listen, guys, these walls have been down 150 years. This is the way it's been. It's the way it's always going to be. Now, think about this. Your grandparents were like this, probably your great-grandparents 150 years ago. Maybe your great-great-grandparents, your parents, you're like this. Your kids are going to be like this. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing, you feeble Jews? And this lie is the same lie that comes to you and to me. It's a lie that leaves God out of the picture. Oh, it can be partly true. You can look in the mirror and say, yeah, I am pathetic. I am. My family is messed up. I come from a broken home. We fight like cats and dogs. My marriage is a mess. Physically, I'm a mess. But do not leave God out of the picture. Because here's the deal. The lie that the Jews are pathetic losers who can do nothing of consequence fails to take into fact that God's activity is what got them there. It fails to acknowledge the fact that it was God's hand that destroyed those walls 150 years ago because of their sin. And it's God's hand now, 150 years later, that will rebuild the walls because of God's grace. See, God wants the walls built. And by golly, they're going to be built. Just like he wanted them destroyed. And by golly, they were destroyed. So San Ballot, you're a liar, man. But we believe the San Ballots, don't we? We look at ourselves, we look at our circumstances, and God is nowhere in the picture, and what do we want to do? We want to quit. We want to quit. When we define ourselves and our circumstances apart from God, God's not in the picture, we want to quit. That's exactly what Sam Ballot was trying to get Nehemiah and the Jews to do. He wanted them to quit. He wanted them to stop rebuilding the walls, and he was mocking them and jeering them and defining them apart from God. Now notice... How Sanballat's lies penetrate even further. He presses his propaganda in verse 2. Let's look at the second part of verse 2. He fires off four quick questions behind the first question. What are these feeble Jews doing? Look at this. Will they restore it? Now the will, they, is the Jews, restore it, the walls, by themselves? Question number two, actually. First question is, what are they doing? Number two, will they restore it by themselves? Number three, will they sacrifice? Number four, will they finish up in a day? And number five, this is the biggie, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? 
See, once again, Sambalat's lies do not take in God into account. His first question is this. Listen, are you feeble guys going to do this yourself? That's the lie. Here's the truth. Well, of course not, Sanballat. God is going to do it through us. Once again, he leaves God out of the equation. Second question, will they sacrifice? That's pointing to worship. That's pointing to prayer. In essence, what he's saying, so is prayer going to magically grow the walls? Are you just going to like sit down and pray and offer your sacrifices and boop, out of the rubble, walls are going to pop up 20 feet tall, three or four feet thick. Well, no. No, they won't. No, no, God will build the walls through us as we pray. And as we pray is will. Because listen to me, we know it's God's will to build the walls because God's man, Nehemiah, in this case, the Christ figure, the Savior, the one who comes and says it's time to rebuild, told us it's God's will and showed us in Scripture. And the hand of God is on him. And so therefore, we're going we're gonna to rebuild. And today, God's man, Jesus Christ, the one whom Nehemiah was foreshadowing, has come to us and lived the perfect life and died on the cross and said it's time to rebuild. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the Sanballats, the Tobias of this world will not stop it. The fourth question. The fourth question. Will you build it in a day? Will you, build, will you finish it up in a day? You know what he's saying? Hey, guys, this is a long-term project. Don't you know the work is too hard? The sun is too strong. This is too much for you. This is a long-term commitment. The answer to that lie is, yes, it is too hard for us. Yes, it is a long-term commitment. But God is for us. And we know this. They knew it in foreshadowing. We know it because it's in Scripture. What God began in us, He will finish. Philippians 1.6 says it very, very clearly. And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion in the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, faith and patience win the day. Faith and patience win the day. And the last lie, the last lie, powerful one. Put that back up. Listen, look carefully what he says. Will they revive, verse 2, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Keep that up there. Okay, look at that scripture carefully. First of all, will they revive the stones? What does that mean? Well, it could be hinting to the Near Eastern idea that stones blackened with fire were cursed and could not be used as building material. The Israelites did not have time to go get fresh stones out of a quarry, and the burnt limestone from the previous walls would be too unstable and fragile to use. So imagine this is limestone that's been burnt. You try to build a wall with it, it crumbles. So can God revive these stones? Well, yes, he can. But before we go there, can we just say that Sam Ballot is not only a liar, he's a big fat liar? This is like asking that question. So how many animals were in Moses' ark? Zero, because it was Noah's ark. All right. So can God revive burnt bricks? Irrelevant question, pal. The bricks weren't burned. What was burned? The gates. 
Go back and read Nehemiah 1. The wall was destroyed. The gates were burned. Satan, you're a liar. You are overstating the amount of destruction. There was no burning of the walls. There was burning of the gates made of wood. So right away, he's a liar. But even if he were, he were right, God could restore those bricks. But more importantly is this. You had a mile circumference wall, four feet thick, 20 feet high, that just was knocked down. So imagine for 150 years, around a city is the rubble of that wall. These things, they're just, they're just lying on the floor, okay? Just 2.5 million of them in a nice one-mile radius circumference, you know, however many feet thick now, because 20 feet high, four feet thick, was probably pretty big, and people just kind of walked around them and stepped through them, and the kids were playing on them. But here's what God can do. He could take those dead bricks lying in a rubbish heap. That's what it says there, the heaps of rubbish. He can take those things, and he can get people that have a heart to work and rebuild them. And that good-for-nothing stone that's on a rubbish heap, our lives, can be taken up and reformed and put back together and someone takes some mortar and puts it and forms it and shapes it and now the walls are going up. The walls are going up. That's what God can do. Listen, God knocked those walls down 150 years ago. God can now build them back up today. Many of you are living in disrepair. Your walls are down because of sin in your life, just like walls were down there. You deserve the judgment of God, as do I. But God, in his covenant mercy, sends Nehemiah to gather those stones and to give us a heart and courage to rebuild them. And he does it in the midst of opposition. But, oh, friends, it's time to rebuild. It's time to rebuild. So what's the antidote of Satan's lies? The truth that God is in the picture. God is the picture. We can build it because God is in us. Prayer does change things because God is real and he's sovereign. The task is not too much for God. And stones lying in the trash heap of life become living stones built into the house of God. Guys, our lives are not cursed. Our lives are blessed in Jesus. They deserve to be cursed. But they're blessed in Jesus. Last week I preached at Metro Life Church and I ran into my old friend Louis Seifert, who is a very respected leader in the church, one of the founding families in the church, has a gift of prophecy that I think is legitimate New Testament prophecy. If you have any questions about that, you can talk to me afterwards about it if you've never heard about that. The scripture talks about prophetic words in the New Testament not being equal to scripture, but being encouraging. We test them certainly, but encouraging. Lewis pulled me aside after I preached last week. And he, said, and he reminded me of a word that he had at Palm Vista many years ago. I, I think it was about 13 years ago. It may have been less, but it was a long time ago. And what he saw is he said, Al, when I came to your church, what I saw is like I pulled up onto a farmer's field that was, that was sown with mixed crops, vegetables, there's orchards with fruit trees, but it had been totally burned over. It was burned, scorched. In fact, the smoke was still coming up from the ash heap and the scorching. 
But as I watched, I saw rain begin to fall and hit the scorched earth. And it made that sound as rain hits scorched earth. And suddenly, miraculously, the ground began to sprout living plants. And the orchard trees that were burnt began to bloom quickly. And from those blooms came fruit abnormally quickly. And the trees became heavy with fruit. And the the plants in the ground became heavy with with fruit and vegetables and things to feed the nations and bless the nations. And he he said to me last week, he he said, Al, I think that's Palm Vista. And I think now's the time. Now's the time. Now's the time. Friend, friend, do you see your life, your family, maybe even this city, as a burned-over, desolate, fruitless orchard or farmer's field that is good for nothing? A rubble, a wall broken down, a place you simply complain about or despair over? Oh, God's here this morning. Nehemiah has come, and Nehemiah is here to tell you, rebuild the wall. It's time. I'm rebuilding it. I scorched the earth. Now I'm going to bring fruit from the earth. I knocked the wall down. Now I'm going to rebuild it. And he's asking us to participate. Oh, and we heard last year from Corey in chapter 2, verse 20, that we will have success because the God of heaven will make us prosper. The God who scorched the earth will make it a fruitful land. Corey was telling me he went out west for vacation this summer. He went to Mount St. Helens in the northwest. And that volcano, when it erupted, it just scorched the earth all around it. But today, if you go there, that scorched earth is filled with living trees and plants. Because the very ash that scorched the earth became fertilizer. And now that soil is rich. And out of that soil, out of the ashes, arises life. And out of the ashes of your life, arises life. God's life, a church made of broken stones, living stones, because God ordained it. Sanballat's question, his original question, was wrongly stated. It wasn't what are these feeble Jews doing, but rather, what is the God of these feeble Jews doing through them? So who defines you? Sanballat? The Sanballats of this world, Satan, the world system? the world's way of determining value, your own flesh, or God and his word and his son and his spirit. Look at verse 3 briefly. Another lie. Look at what uh, Sanballat's sidekick Tobiah has to say. Nehemiah 4.3. Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Oh, Tobiah's lie was particularly fierce. He mocks the quality of the wall. They had been working so hard to rebuild by saying that if a fox jumps on their wall, it'll fall down. Now, this lie was very disheartening because back then, in the cities built in 440 B.C., a city wall was built to withstand the force, the siege of an army for days against it. Battering rams, all kinds of weapons of war had to be brought to bear at that point of the wall to just knock down one little part of it. Tobias saying, your wall is so anemic, so pathetic, that a fox could jump on it and the whole thing falls down. Have you had folks mock your call as a Christian? Have you had them tell you you are crazy for taking your talents and building the way you build, whether it's in your family, whether here in the church, how you use the time and money and talents God has given you? 
They say that you are building something that's a joke, man. If a fox jumped on it, it would fall down. You are a joke. They do not value what God is building. Therefore, they mock you. This is the point. It tempts us, doesn't it? It tempts us when we give to the church sacrificially and don't buy the new car or the new couch for the living room. And people look at our car and they say, what a joke you are. You drive that piece of junk? That says more about you to me than anything. Look at your clothes. What kind of watch are you wearing? I go into your house, man, your, your, your couch is, and you just, you just take it, man. And you say, you know what? God's building something that you can't see. And I'm sending something ahead that will never, ever tarnish. And it says more about me than a shiny new car or a nice watch or a beautiful couch. We've got to fight the lie with the truth. Otherwise, we get demoralized and we quit. Don't ever evaluate yourself or your family or your circumstances or this church apart from God. Don't do that. I make that mistake and it's always a bad deal. I was, I was confronted on making that mistake this week by my friends, the pastoral team here. I'm so glad they did. But it's easy to do, isn't it? We get discouraged. We, we, we let the world get in our heads, our flesh, Satan. And we just start, we start valuing things wrongly. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because God is not impressed with what the world is impressed with. God, 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 do not accept the world's low estimate of God's calling in your life. Fight it with the truth that God has called you to build your life, this church, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must reference all of your life to God and what he has said in his word and what he has done for you in Christ. This is what we call the gospel here. This is why, this is that thing we try to keep central. It's the rock it's our Nehemiah. It's Jesus. It's what sustains us when we look at rubble and we hear all the lies from the enemies. Next week, Jose is going to talk to you about the lies intensify. It starts getting like really serious combat. What sustains us when we want to quit, we become cowards, is the truth of God. This, the word of God and what Christ has done, who is the living Word. Friends, we can rebuild and reach our city not because of who we are, but because of who God is in us. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. My life is no longer defined by me. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. All right. So what do God's people do? Who are God's people? What do they do? Well, look at verse 4. Look at Nehemiah 4, 4. We're going to read verses 4 and 5. What do God's people do? Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. What do God's people do? God's people trust the Lord who intercedes for them. You see, when Nehemiah, the Christ figure, heard the scorn of the enemies, and especially their ridicule of the builders, he intercedes for them, even as Christ intercedes for us when the world scorns and ridicules us. 
Nehemiah's prayer here, it's judgment on Sanballat and Tobiah. Look at the final line of that prayer in verse 5. Look at that very final line. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. There's some question of how, as to how to uh, translate that. It certainly is a provocation of God. I think the New American Standard Bible, I think, translates it a little more accurately. This is the way it translates it. For they have demoralized the builders. They have demoralized the builders. Lord, listen to their taunts. Their taunts are being effective. The builders are demoralized. People are starting to not work. They're wanting to quit. They don't want to come to church anymore. They don't want to be part of home group. They're discouraged. They're tired. They don't want to rebuild this wall. Listen to them, Lord. And then look what he prays. Friends, this is pretty chilling what he prays. Put that back up there, please. Hear, O Lord, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. You know what he's praying? He's praying, Lord, you do to them what they want done to us. Now let me pause for a moment. This prayer is called an imprecatory prayer, or a prayer of vengeance. Friends, it is prayed by the Christ figure here, Nehemiah. It is not prayed by the Jews. I don't believe that you may pray this prayer every time someone taunts you. I know that you're disappointed by that. You, my friend, are not Nehemiah. You are certainly not Jesus Christ. But what does this prayer tell you? It tells you that God takes very seriously when his name is not honored. Look at how seriously he takes it. Do to them what they want done to us. And then look what it says after that. May they be plundered in a land where they are captives. That's what happened to Israel 150 years earlier. They were plundered and they were sent into captivity. And further, do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. Friends, we would never pray that. We're called to preach the gospel, not to tell God not to forgive people's guilt and not to blot out their sin. But don't you see? This is what happens to people. This is God's judgment. This is the judgment of Christ, Nehemiah the Christ figure. This is Jesus Christ coming back to judge the wicked, the unbelieving, the mockers, those who taunt God's people. See, see, Sam Battle and Tobiah, they're not being judged here for jeering the Jews, but for jeering God. And his ability to empower the Jews to rebuild the walls. Sanballat and Tobiah, they're opposing God in their opposition of the Jews. They're mocking God in their mocking of the Jews. The issue here is God's name, God's honor, God's ability. Folks, that's the issue at Palm Vista. That's the issue in your life. The issue is not about you. That's why you can't pray this just for you. You're being selfish and sinful if you do. You're being vengeful and bitter. You may not do that. No, the issue is not about us, though we foolishly make it about us in our pride. It's about whether God can do it, not whether we can do it. It's about God's name, not our name. It's not about our giftings, how good we are, how innovative or creative we can be, how righteous we are. It's about how righteous Jesus is. 
and how he comes to build his people who are on the garbage heap. Stones that are dead become living stones. See, the opposition is primarily against God. So Sam battled and Tobiah were sinning against God, and God judges them. For it is through Nehemiah's prayer that God judges them, just as it is through Christ's return that God will judge the world one day. My friends, this judgment, to be plundered, to be taunted, to be sent into captivity, to not have our sins forgiven, to not have our guilt forgiven, to not have our sins blotted out. Friends, this is the judgment that Israel experienced 150 years earlier. And the only reason that they're experiencing a blessing now and Sanballat and Tobiah are experiencing this curse is God's covenant mercy. It's the only reason we can build. Because we don't deserve blessing. We deserve a curse. Because we've mocked God. We've told God he couldn't do it. Some of you are mocking him right now. And I warn you, God takes it very seriously. He sent the Christ figure to save us now if we repent and believe. He will send Christ at the end time to judge those who do not. Oh, friends, we deserve the judgment as did Israel. We deserve to be plundered and sent into captivity, not have our guilt forgiven, not have our sins blocked out. What what this is describing, friend, it's a judgment. It's the judgment of damnation, torment, both now and forever. But thank God that Jesus the fulfillment of all that Nehemiah foreshadowed came to intercede for those of us who have sinned against God in this way by living the perfect life of faith and obedience and then dying on the cross to take our sin and he will restore the broken lives and build them together into a spiritual house of God's worship and God's blessing to all the nations for all who repent and believe. He'll bring fruit to our burned over fields so that others can eat from them and be blessed. Hence, fulfilling the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, I'll make you a blessing to all the nations. Friends, believe that Jesus takes your judgment upon himself on the cross. Jesus took your curse. He was burned over, judged for you to restore your burned over lives for his glory. This is the gospel. Don't forget the gospel. See, this prayer exhibits the holy, awesome side of God. It is, it is, he is serious about his glory. He is serious about his name. He is serious about the holiness of his character. And anyone who speaks against him will be judged. In the world system, the flesh, all of these lie to us to get us to forget who we are. We're God's people, defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we forget, we stop building the walls of our lives. God says, you will never be the same. There's, a, there's a, a David Crowder song that I love. It says, you will never be the same. According to God, that's the word. But Satan says, Sambala says, you will never change, you feeble Jews, Christians. See, we can be tempted to apathetically think, you know, this is just how it's going to be. We're a small church. We don't have much. Can we really do this? Can we really change in our own lives, our marriages restored? Can we really reach Miami Lakes or Miami or the Caribbean? Can we really rebuild lives for Christ's glory? And we leave God out of the equation. We forget that he's the difference maker. Christ forgives us for that sin of unbelief. He's forgiven me this week for it. 
and takes the judgment for that sin of unbelief and then blesses us with his faith and his obedience so that we might work with all our hearts to build God's church. And that's the second thing that God's people do. God's people work with all their hearts to build God's dwelling. Look at verse 6, please. Verse 6, concluding this portion of the text. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I love the simplicity of this text, don't you? The wall is built to half its height by the people of God, doing the work of God. And we see the proof of it in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now look at verse 31 and 32 at the end of that chapter. After him, Malkisha, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. Look at verse 32. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate... Back to where they began. The goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So from the high priest to goldsmiths and everything in between, God's people were busy doing God's work of rebuilding God's walls of God's city. They began at the sheep gate in verse 1. This is the gate right by the temple where they would bring in the sheep for the sacrifice. They went counterclockwise all the way around the city and they ended up in verse 32 back at the sheep gate. They built the wall. Now, it was only to half his height, I realize that, but they built it. The people had a mind to work because of Nehemiah's intercession for them. And so we have a mind to work because of Christ's intercession for us. We have a mind to build at Palm Vista Community Church and reach our city because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He intercedes for us. He defines us. So we're back to our opening question. Here it is. What are these feeble Jews doing? What are these feeble Christians doing? The answer, they're trusting Christ for their identity. As God's people, we are defined by Christ and the cross, not by our feeble sin. What else are they doing? They're working with all their heart to build the church and all because of the covenant mercy in Christ, our Nehemiah. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you this morning that I can pray for my friends. Lord, for those right now who feel like they cannot be rebuilt. They define themselves apart from your restoring miraculous hand. Have mercy on them. Lord, I pray for my friends right now who don't know you, who mock you, the Sanballats and Tobias seated in this auditorium right now. Have mercy on their souls. Lord, I am not Nehemiah, and I am certainly not you. So I can't pray that their sin not be blotted out, that their guilt not be uh, covered Lord, I pray the opposite. May their sin be blotted out. May their guilt be covered. May this be the day of salvation for them right now, Lord. May your conviction come upon them. May you come into the picture. You're already there. Their minds are blinded. Their eyes are blinded. They do not see you. In their hearts, they do not believe in you. But, oh God, open their eyes. Open their hearts. Unstop their deaf ears. And give them faith. Oh God. And for all those in this city that don't know you yet, but that you have called your elect, bring them, Lord. May we preach your gospel as we build together your church and proclaim it and declare it with our lips and our lives that Jesus is Lord. He's our Nehemiah. He was cursed that we might be blessed. 
His walls were knocked down that ours might be rebuilt. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this song, Covenant of Grace.